presumptuous of us to assume that the Earth is uh, the only inhabited planet in the universe. Hello and welcome to UFO Lore. This is a multimedia project where we examine the history, mythology and parapsychology of the UFO phenomenon. Today's episode features Jack Brewer. He is an American researcher who is featured on many websites and in multiple books. Jack has written the UFO trail for more than a decade. It's a popular blog dedicating to posting credible information on incredible topics. His book, The Greys Have Been Framed, has received much interest and praise as he documents ethics failures and subpar research in the UFO field. Over the next hour, we will interrogate everything from the social dynamics of the UFO subculture and its odd relationship with the US intelligence community to the use of the Freedom of Information Act to study the nuts and bolts of sightings and potential cover-ups. Enjoy. Well, joining us this week is Jack Brewer, on the line from the United States, somewhere in mid-Florida. He's had a lifelong interest in UFOs and has been writing the uh, popular blog, The UFO Trail, for 10 years. Is that right, Jack? That's correct. And you... Um, You've got your um, the, your book, which um, I think it's described as documenting ethics, um, mm-hmm. epic fa- failures, and subpar UFO uh, research practices, and that's the grades have been framed, the exploitation of the UFO community. That's correct, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad to join you guys today. And uh, as always, uh, Dr. David Clark, or should I say, Associate Professor David Clark. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. If your modesty will allow. <laughs> yeah. So, Jack, first of all, how would you describe your um, your position when it comes to UFOs? I try to be a, a, a moderate person, objective about it, Richard. I came at this topic um, much more believing there was something extraordinary in it. That was my original interest, uh, as you mentioned, I have a lifelong interest, and it seemed like the more I dug into it and tried to get things under a glass, the the more these stories seemed to crumble. And so, at, at this point, I'm I'm willing to suspend judgment and wait and see. But I my personal research um, does not lead me to believe there's any conclusive proof that there's uh, an alien presence among us, for instance. So my interest has kind of turned to social aspects of it and things people do with the UFO topic. It's exploitation by a number of demographics. So I I guess we could say I, I try to be an advocate of critical thinking and not put the cart before the horse and and see where the evidence takes us. What initially inspired your interest then, Jack? Did you did you see something or was it just, you know, you read something that sparked that interest? As a kid, I was interested in ghost stories and paranormal subject matter. And I did have a sighting at a, about 10 years old. At this point in my life, I've uh, come to be okay with not knowing what I saw and kind of coming to terms with I'll probably never know conclusively what it was. And 
uh, like many of us, uh, raising families and whatnot, I kind of got away from the subject matter for a while, careers and that kind of thing uh, tend to intervene. Then in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, I came back at it more. During the early 1990s, for instance, I began to go to the uh, conferences, and that was, that was a big time in, in the ufology realm of uh, uh, people like Bud Hopkins were making a lot of noise, Dr. John Mack. Uh, we, we had the whole... Uh, um, Bill Moore fiasco. And so, so I, I was just interested in what all was going on then. And as, as I mentioned, as I continued to um, look closer at, at like the work of Bud Hopkins, for instance, he's a really good storyteller and he can frame things really interestingly and just sounds like this is just an airtight case. And then you start actually interviewing the witnesses yourself or talking to people yourself and, and finding a lot of discrepancies that are left out of the paperbacks. Right. So that was back in the, in the nineties when you were um, getting back into this area. How do you think that compares to the current state of uh, UFO research and um, the the new players in this uh, in this area. I think it's interesting that we've had what somewhat of a resurgence um, when when it was by many of the the high profile people in the community uh, thought this was um, that the topic was even lagging a great deal. Um, say, say five years ago. There, I remember people were even joking about there's just no UFOs in the UFO community anymore. And it, it's interesting that it came back with such a bang that, that, I mean, you could make an argument that this is uh, a golden age compared to previous decades now that we find ourselves in of public interest and the, the quality of the Pentagon officials that, that seem to have an interest in the topic and whether we end up deciding that people involved with To The Stars Academy, for instance, uh, whether we end up deciding that they're true believers or, or whatever their agendas may be, there, there's pretty much no debate that, that they held responsible positions, as, you know, some of them uh, in their careers before they decided to be, become what what basically has become the face of UFOs. And, and I think a really interesting diet, it went from virtually dead in the water to a, a tremendous snapback effect of one of the most interesting times that's brought in journalists that wouldn't have had an interest at all just because of the, the positions of the players. So this would be like the uh, the articles in the New York Times and and such. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I know you guys spoke with Sarah Scholes 
recently, yeah. and she's a journalist that, if I'm understanding her work correctly, um, would probably never even come at this if it wasn't for seeing it and the the positions that people like Christopher Mellon uh, and Steve Justice, people like that, held before whatever reasons they decided to get involved with Tom DeLonge. Yeah, he was in the, um, the, the Guardian newspaper here in the UK this week. Um, he, uh, he, he, it, he, I think when you, you were talking earlier about some of the, some of the guys back in the nineties and um, when they talk and they, they're really good storytellers and, and you're going, ah, that's, You've got me there, and then you think, and then you realise what they've left out. I think I felt that reading about Tom DeLong, especially in this most recent article. But his main area was of of uh, discussion was, well, I can't tell you. I know stuff, but I can't tell you. I mean, is the that seems to be the the, the sort of the party line at the moment by a lot of um, a lot of people who are um, researching into UFOs. Yeah, it does, and I think that's just horrible. I, I did see that article, and that stood out to me, too, that at least a couple of times he he said, he implied, well, I'd like to tell you, but I think he even invoked national security issues as a reason he yeah. couldn't, which is just, to me, an insult to intelligence that I, I don't think he holds a security clearance. I, I don't know what capacity it might be in if he does, which begs the question, are people with security clearances giving him information and telling him not to share it, which just brings up a, a host of questions and concerns, all of which, yeah, let's go back to square one and establish anyone actually said anything first and and that hasn't even been done but i very much agree richard that that it's it's concerning and you see that around a lot i'd like to tell you but i can't and um, yeah, I I you'd agree with me if you I, I seem to remember that yeah Nick you'd Burke agree used with the me same uh, used the same thing back in the 90s you know that he, he had all this knowledge from working at the Ministry of Defence in London that he couldn't tell us about. And now that we've actually seen the actual documentation from that time, it tells a completely different story. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And the, these guys uh, try to stay relevant a, a long time based on in instances like that. And I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, you mentioned Bill Moore earlier, Jack. Um, do you think that um, that uh, Tom Delonge is 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 fulfilling a very similar function that Bill did back in the nineteen uh, eighties? Because quite clearly, he was being used by someone to leak information about MJ twelve uh, to the public, and there was a similar media furore at the time. If you remember, it seems to me that history is repeating itself. It, that certainly would would make more sense to me than an alien presence. Like I just uh, mentioned that he he uh, I, I said that 
him saying he can't tell for national security issues raises a number of questions, and that's certainly one of them. If people holding security clearances in current positions of interest are telling him stories, that would certainly, to me, be one of the first uh, concerns I would have is what their motive is for telling these stories. And as you suggest with Bill Moore, that there is precedence for this, this kind of dynamic. And Bill Moore is just one of the higher profile, but there are a lot of instances that, that we could look at where people who held security clearances in the the defense industry had interests in ufos as well and it, it can get pretty shady their circles of contacts and and what the people's agendas are that may be using the ufo topic as a means to gain their trust and we we just get into a whole nother area that the average person like myself that that saw something that he at least perceived as strange in the sky as a child starts hanging around ufo conventions and hears doctors from harvard talking just doesn't have an understanding of the implications to the, the spy craft and, and national security and all the things that may be going on among people like Bill Moore and Richard Doty and many others. I, I think that's something that, that deserves more attention. So what, what do you make of all this uh, controversy surrounding ATAP, uh, ATIP, sorry, the, the, you know, the U S Navy videos You've got the New York Times getting involved, um, the UAP task force. Um, is this, well, well, what do you make of all this? I, I think that the episode I listened to with you guys and Sarah Scholes is a really good rundown of it. I think that we need to really be careful and prioritize critical thinking and take it one item at a time, one issue at a time. We need to make sure we don't jump to assumptions. And some of the more subtle things that I think are going on are, I, I think there's some circumstances where spokespeople have been caught in a bind and I think that perhaps, for instance, uh, we have a, a circumstance where a department of a defense spokesperson will say something in an email and to a researcher, then researchers will focus on that a single aspect of that statement and say, well, what does this mean? And then they have to rehuddle and say, well, what did I mean by that? And, and I think that we have circumstances where the task force, for instance, almost seem to grow out of a statement that a spokesperson made that may have even been relatively off the cuff when they made it. And I, so whether I'm correct about that or not, I think my point is still valid that 
whatever may have been going on with the actual ATIP players, whatever may be going on with those that are involved with TTSA now, we still have groups of people orbiting all this, like the Pentagon spokespeople and the researchers that are interacting with them, that, that a whole nother uh, subculture comes up of what they're talking about and what they're doing and what their motives are. And I think we just, for the most part, need to just wait and see what we can learn from the FOIA and suspend judgment on all of the implications and insinuations and whatnot. Because, of course, um, um, Japan's been talking about joining forces with the uh, with the U.S. in their um, in, in this area to to, to look at uh, potential or alleged encounters with UFOs. So it's got the Japanese interested. They're called UAPs now. Oh is... yes, of course. <laughs> that, that's yes, yes, UAP. That's right. And a few years ago, we had Central America and and South America and Chile really getting on board with what seemed to me. Um, admittedly, this is just my opinion, but seemed like an effort to amp up the interest. And maybe for some reason, it's. Um, beneficial to funding or, or something of that nature to to get on board with the investigation. And I think it also deserves saying that the, the armed services have always had an interest in airspace. And, and what we may think of UAP and UFOs is, is often not the same definition that a, a, uh, a defense agency will come at um, incursions on airspace. I mean, they, they've, of course, Japan would be interested in um, advancing its abilities to, to, to track what enemies are doing in the air. So how much it's really about unexplained yet to be defined phenomena and how much it's about advancing abilities to, to control understanding what's in the air, I, I think is an issue too. Do you think there's, um, what do you think the relevance is that the U S Navy are the lead players in this new task force? Because the, the Navy have always played a very low key role in UFO investigations, not just in the USA, but elsewhere. Why all of a sudden are they now leading this? I I couldn't answer that. I, I do not know. I, I would like your opinions on that as well. I think it, it has to do, my opinion is things are compartmentalized. I think that it grows out of um, previous grants and previous areas of work and research and development for technologies. What do you think about that? Well, I, I can only talk from the what I've found from the British perspective, and I know that right from the very beginning in the 1950s, you know, there was the, uh, the, the involvement of Winston Churchill was interested in uh, flying saucers, as they were 
back then in the early 50s, but the very early British government um, UFO pro project, whatever you want to call it, um, the Navy was involved in that, the Royal Navy, for the first few years. And I think it's all to do with internal politicking in, in, in the armed services, in that the Navy hate the Air Force and the Air Force hate the Navy, and they're all sort of uh, competing for an ever-decreasing um, pot of money. And I think if there's some advantage in... in in, in sort of having a UAP, UAP or UFO investigation sort of agency that attracts them um, finance from a certain part of the government, they will go for it. And I think it's not necessarily anything to do with alien technology. It's just simply they, they, they want the kudos and they want the money. And if they're getting articles in the New York Times that say, oh, the Navy are on this, it makes the Navy look good. You know, and I think mm. it's purely from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like that was even when I alluded to the uh, DOD spokesperson remark about a task force looks this over. I read that as assurance that don't worry, we're on it. And then somebody said, well, what task force? And I'm not sure that had been thought out real well. And I did find, you know, we go back to the mid-20th century, I did find a very similar circumstance where uh, someone had written their congressperson, and, and I believe it was the 1950s or thereabout, and asked about uh, the UFO problem. They considered it at that time. Time and the congressperson assured them that Congress was investigating. And then, as it turns out, it was really more, I think, just kind of an off the cuff reference to the Robertson panel or something to that effect. Uh, you know, a 1953 um, short term investigation. But uh, to your point, yes, I, I think that the congressman was just trying to kind of reassure people, don't worry, we're on it, we got it. And if there's an advantage in it for him, votes, um, campaign donations, something to that effect, well, yeah, I'm your UFO guy, you know. Um, and I, I think you're right that if there's funding to be had and it can be identified as a threat, that narrative seems to have been pushed pretty hard, too, as compared to the old one about not a matter of American national security anyway. Then, yeah, I agree that there's a number of things that become advantageous in that way. And also the, the personalities, the people who are who become interested in this subject, in just again from the British perspective back in the 50s it was um it was lord mountbatten who was obviously the admiral of the fleet at the time and he was very much into flying saucers um collected his own file on the subject so he was the one who was pushing the british government to sort of have an investigation in around the early 1950s and then later on lord hill norton i'm sure you remember him another mm -hmm. uh, retired chief of defense staff who i interviewed um, before his death, and he said that uh, when he was actually head of the Royal Navy, the subject, as to use his own words, never crossed his desk. And it was only after he retired and he started reading ufological literature that suddenly he thought, why did they not tell me about this when I was, uh, you know, chief of the defence staff? 
Yeah, so a lot of it is down to this sort of cult of the credible witness, this cult of the, the military person who you, you presume because they were head of the military, they must have known everything. But like you said, a lot of this information is compartmentalised on a need-to-know basis. Yeah, and I, I think that the Information Act shows us as well that there are people in prestigious positions, there are well-educated people that are not exempt from falling victim to belief. There are some, some people that just believe the alien or the supernatural or the demon aspect of it, and that plays in too and and we're going to have the the little groups and subgroups that some go with this theory some go with that theory some aren't even going to talk about it with a work colleague because they already know what they believe or don't believe and and we get all the same dynamics as we do in, in any other group um like the mutual ufo network in, in America, its board of directors uh, long had strong ties with uh, intelligence agencies and military careers. Like I'm thinking particularly of Tom Dooley, who who had a stint with the NSA and and he was a career Navy man. And it, it's completely possible that with, with his education and with his his uh, his military career, he still just believed that that something um, extraordinary may be going on with these reports of UFOs. And there there certainly seems to be a uh, group of people to that effect from those positions as well. Do you think there's too much reverence for the military in, uh, you know, in the ufological discourse? It seems there seems to be this bizarre thing where, you know, if someone's it all depends on somebody's rank and somebody's service in the military. That's all that matters, you know, as a, as a measure of the credibility of what they're saying. In that way, like I just mentioned with, with Tom Dooley, I certainly do that. We, we could say the same with uh, some of the PhDs that have have published paperbacks on UFOs that they should be held to the same standards as anyone else of separating fact from opinion. And if you want to state a bunch of circumstances and then state what your relatively educated analysis is, fine, that's one thing. But in the case of some of the military people, no. Just because they they um, they say that it's their opinion. Well, they often don't even say it's their opinion. They just state things as if it's fact. And yeah, I, I do believe that much too much emphasis is put on uh, former Pentagon official, former. Uh, deputy director of this that or the other indeed i do but i also think um when it comes to sort of military pilots there seems to be this thing that you know that what they say has to be taken as absolutely the the truth you know that you can't possibly have made a mistake and yeah if we go back to alan hynek way back you know project blue book if you read the ufo evidence one thing he says was 
when he did all the analysis of the Blue Book files, it actually turned out that military pilots were some of the worst, least credible witnesses in terms of what they described. But yet, no one seems to take this on board. No, they don't. And, and right, I'm aware of that. They were actually below average, mm. which is just fascinating that they're given so much credibility. I was recently discussing with a friend that it, that's something that we, we really could do to change in, in the whole UFO genre is that, that witnesses get put in a position that they seem to need to defend themselves. And it, it would be helpful, I think, it, but if we could get a better understanding of it is simply a human characteristic to not know exactly what happened. It doesn't mean that, that there's something mentally weak about you. It, it doesn't mean that, that you're not smart. It means you're human to not know exactly what happened. And study after study after study has shown us that, that you can take a group of people and you can ask them about something that happened 15 minutes ago and they have different interpretations. And virtually none of them are going to be exactly right about every aspect of it. And we, we need to stop expecting anything different to be the case. This, but th this idea of, of people in uh, positions of uh, power and responsibility, such as pilots or policemen, is something you've spoke about quite a bit, Dave. Um, but what is it about about people who they just can't let go of the fact that they see these people as people of authority. Well, uh, uh, no one's doubting that they had an extraordinary experience of some kind in the way that Jack was describing it. And the fact that they've, they've seen something. I mean, I think Heineck said this, that it's like this transfer of skill in that uh, police officers are trained to be police officers. They're not trained to identify things that they see in the sky fleetingly. And the same goes for pilots in that they are they are they are experts at identifying known aircraft. You know, so if they were seeing some kind of Russian aircraft intruding in their field of vision, they'd, they'd know straight away what it was. You know, but but something that's that's seen fleetingly, they're no more experts at knowing what it is than the average person in the street. You know, the fact that they've had top gun training doesn't doesn't make any difference. You know, there's, there's been civilian pilots who've had literally thousands of hours experience flying all over the globe who've seen things like um, space debris re-entering, which is quite an unusual thing to see. And they've seen it as some kind of flying saucer. And well, we know for a fact it was space debris because we can, you know, you can track it, can't you? You can go back on a computer program. You can find out exactly where that aircraft was and where the debris was coming in. That is what they saw exactly at that moment. They won't have it. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, so again, it, it, you've got to question the interpretation, not the experience. That's my view. Of course, um, a possibility of a spaceship entering the atmosphere is a lot more exciting and sexy than... Space well, every burning up. Well, of course, and there's always going to be people who say, yeah, yeah, but it was the aliens who, who knew that the space debris was going to be re-entering at that time, and they just used that moment to sneak in to Earth's atmosphere. I mean, you can't argue with that kind of logic or illogic. No, you can't. I, I saw something just the other day where 
it was becoming apparent that where they're headed with this is that something apparently alien camouflaged itself as balloons. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but this is this okay. Is the basic, I'm out, guys. You know. <laughs> this is the basic <laughs> problem, isn't it, about the whole UFO UAP alien thing? If if these things are alien intelligence and they're coming here from wherever. Either they want to be seen or they don't want to be seen. If they don't want to be seen, we wouldn't even be having this discussion now, would we? Because they'd be wherever they are without us knowing that they were here. If they do want to be seen, then, you know, why do they leave the lights on if they don't want to be seen? Is another might seem an odd question, but I don't know. These are some basic things that I find baffling and that no one seems to address. Yeah, it, and it, it it does need to be addressed. If, if the um, ET human hybrids that are abducting people can mind control them and not allow them to have any recovery of the memory, then how are we talking about ET human hybrids abducting them? <laughs> yes, it is 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 a break in logic. That that is correct. Um, yeah, all all this sort of hype. And um, uh, about around this area, is, do you think this is why we've started to find other words creeping in, um, as opposed to uh, UFOs and now UAPs? And we're now talking about phenomenon. I, I think so. Uh, you know, we have in the community we have people that identify with experiencers. They, they tend to kind of, some of us tend to kind of bunch it all together as phenomena, the phenomena, and, and that can get pretty broad. Uh, I, I'm sure you guys know Bigfoot has its place in the UFO mythology, and uh, you want to put it under high strangeness, the phenomena. It, it's it's pretty broad. It can be pretty much everything. In, in my opinion, we, we're we're often more talking about how something makes us feel than what than something that may be going on in an objective reality. Like if I get the same feeling as something I saw when I was a kid, or it reminds me of that when I come home and my back door is standing open and I don't know, did I leave that unlocked? Was it the wind? Was it a pet? How did that happen? Then I start to associate those events and, and, and something may feel unusual that, that I, I'm really not even in a position to be able to objectively tell because of the feeling it gives me. And I, I think that's a lot of the part about calling something the phenomena is the further outlying we get from a specific incident, the more convoluted it can become. And if, if we identify certain people as long-term experiencers, or it, it, it just gets really ambiguous and hard to put under a glass. And maybe that's okay. I, I know there are researchers like George Hansen and those that appreciate his work that would say that's the very nature of the beast, the, the 
uh, where the the betwixt in between where the liminality is, the the lighthouse on the shore. Maybe there's something correct to that. I think there's a lot more exact ways to come at things, though, before we have to get to that extreme. And one of my pet peeves actually is the ambiguity that's often given to the whole topic. And it seems that there are certain people that that profit on it that seem to like to keep the ambiguity and avoid ways we can drill down through certain information but but prefer not and then that spreads to the followers that understandably are just interested in looking at the stars at night and contemplating and wondering what all might be out there but everything doesn't have to be ambiguous like that we and and romantic and um nostalgic um for instance if, if a person claimed to have experienced a missing fetus there are certain tests that can be done and research that can be done about that that is more cost effective by the day and the answer to everything isn't always throw up our hands and say, well, that's just the nature of the beast. You know, it's not going to allow science to uh, corner it. Yeah. So do you think that like a more paranormal interpretation of or, or approach to UFOs as opposed, you know, as opposed to like a nuts and bolts approach is, is a new normal now in mainstream ufology? I think so, yes. And I think that's partially by necessity. I, I think there was always the the valet, Jacques Vallée following that that as he as he stated would be disappointed if he were to find out it, it was indicative of nothing more than visiting visitors from another planet. And, and they thought there was some interdimensionality or ultra-terrestrial aspect to it. But I also think that that's caught on more by necessity because science caught up. And some of the researchers like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, and I use the term researcher loosely, they had the luxury of saying, well, nothing you can do about it. And science caught up with some of their theories, and there are things that we can do about someone that, that claims um, extraordinary things or, or that extraordinary beings are coming to their house on a regular basis. There are ways to, to check that a little more than witness testimony. And so I think that the, uh, the supernatural aspect became more entrenched due to a necessity of nuts and bolts is too easy to falsify at this point. So where do you think uh, then, so abductions, where's that fit into all this? Oh boy, who, who knows? Um, as we've discussed about other things, I would not um, take a, complete 
position. I, I wouldn't say none of them are credible. As Dr. Clark was saying, there, there are people that experience things that were unusual. They certainly perceived them to be extraordinary. How much of this is due to perception? I, I don't know. I, I think the vast majority of the cases, there, there are relatively prosaic explanations. I think that one of the things that we're not going to be able to get away from is the influence that culture has on our thinking. Um, and, and we can take my personal experience uh, as a teenage boy, what possible reason would I have to think that something I saw in the sky may have been related to extraterrestrials other than my personal conditioning? I, I mean, we're just not going to get away from that, that books, movies, television, the media. Uh, and, and as an adult, I had a, a something happen that I, I thought was interesting from the aspect of subjectivity. I never gave much credence to the um, some UFOs are just birds in flight theory. Uh, you know, at first glance, that can sound pretty ridiculous that you'd mistake a goose for a you know spaceship. <laughs> but uh, one night I did see what by all appearances looked like a saucer traversing the heavens at a very rapid rate. And fortunately... Uh, the angle I was standing at, I was able to see that a bird was passing by very low flying and it was reflection of light off its belly that made it look like a saucer. And so as I thought about this, it, it did occur to me that if I spent more time reading books about what birds look like flying at <laughs> night, that's what I would have initially thought I saw. Yeah. Well, so maybe, that, maybe if Kenneth Arnold had read a few books about white pelicans, <laughs> we, we wouldn't even be here now. <laughs> it, the question is relevant. Yes, sir. <laughs> Talking about the, um, the the almost almost the subconscious is you know uh, which is a bit like um, as Dave and I uh, were talking the other day about triangular UFOs and he says yeah it's funny how they they came along in the seventies just as Star Wars was released with the big triangular star destroyers as a big spaceships and obviously people have seen Star Wars but. Going a bit deeper into sort of the subconscious, what are your thoughts on the use of regression, hypnotherapy to investigate alien abductions and, and sightings? With what we know now about memory and hypnosis, I, in a word, I think it's unconscionable. I, I think that it, it's terrible. It, it's, it's not an effective investigation tool. It, it, it's potentially very damaging to the individual. The fact that a, a person would even be implementing it in the first place means that they're, they're biased. I mean, even in circumstances where we have um, individuals with mental health credentials that facilitate UFO support groups, 
if it's a UFO support group in the first place means that they're biased towards that explanation the vast majority of the time. And um, I really can't overemphasize that I'm, I'm against it. I think that all of the literature, all of the credible studies show that it, it's horrible. I, I, I just had nothing good to say about hypnosis used to, as an investigative tool and a memory enhancer. And I've just been involved in cases, written about them rather extensively, where the, the people that submitted themselves to this were um, exploited by any, any uh, definition of the word and struggle to regain a sense of self and memory and try to put back intact a, uh, a, an, an identity that they relate to after it was broken down and stripped and, and basically just screwed with. Yeah, an unethical practice. To put it mildly uh, absolutely absolutely then i just can't overemphasize how how much um i do not support that as a practice in, in what other ways would you say then jack does exploitation exist in the ufo um, community and, and from whom who's doing the exploitation and why well when you first uh say that my my thoughts turn to situations like skinwalker ranch um i i when we get to a point where we we may be willing to suspend judgment but again and again and again and again we're waiting on data that can be looked at um evidence made available for public review that supports the the claims and the conclusions drawn we we're just really front loaded in in a in a saga like skinwalker of years of one team or another um, having these extraordinary claims. And I don't know what the ultimate purpose was. Uh, some of it may be in there, as you were discussing earlier, about it's a pretty good gig for grant writers and researchers to be able to hang out on a ranch for years um, getting getting paid to run tests. Uh, there's all, all kinds of aspects of it that may come into play. I can't prove any of those, but what I do know is, is that the alternative has not been proven either. You, you, it has not been established that extraordinary things are happening on the ranch, much less that they're, um, driven by some type of non-human intelligence and at the center of this we often find find robert bigelow uh one of the another thing that i wrote about that i came across was uh some of you and your listeners may be familiar with the carpenter affair that was a 1990 situation where uh, John Carpenter was the director of abduction research for the Mutual UFO Network, and 
he supplied Robert Bigelow with some 140 case files and apparently hypnosis tapes of people that were suspected to be um, alien abductees that he had worked with. And we only came to know about this through the investigative work of others. And uh, it, it was a very, even by John Carpenter described it to me as a covert exchange of information. And he defended his actions. Uh, the people were not um, the possible abductees were not informed or asked permission for this to happen. And he was a uh, licensed mental health or licensed social worker in the state of Missouri. And um, for circumstances that arose out of this, he eventually had a um, probation period put on his license and he completed that. But that would be one of my answers to exploitation of the topic. There, there's, we don't even have time in a podcast to go into how many things are wrong with that from a professional research standpoint. Yeah. That he got paid approximately fourteen grand, about a hundred bucks a piece for these uh, cases, and the extent that it, it's a violation of trust, the the extent that it taints your research if they're more valuable, if, if they seem to have extraordinary experiences. Um, I, we, we just don't even have time to go into what all's unethical from a research standpoint. And I'd like to add to that, please, that while ethics are important for the protection of research subjects. They're also important to the integrity of the research. It's just not good information that's, that's sloppily put together and sold covertly and under those type of circumstances. Yet he continues, last I look, to be invited places to speak at, at you know, people that are pro-UFO beliefs because of all the people he's worked with. And as we were talking earlier about, you know, the um, pleading to an authority figure of he had a, a degree and um, was the director of this, that, or the other once for MUFON. So let's give him a microphone and have him tell us about ET. It's just, it, it's just, there's just nothing good about it. Nothing. So where do you think we're going to be in this field of ufology in 10 years time then? Uh, I think that we will have someone telling us that UFO disclosure is right around the corner and, <laughs> and we'll have a couple of authority figures that are the latest big ticket at the conventions, I would say. Uh, and how about you, Jack? Have you got any UFO-related projects in the pipeline? I am working on compiling information about the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, that was pretty strong and popular in the 1950s and 1960s, and uh, then due to reasons that are debated, it fizzled out 
I think there's a number of reasons that it went the way of the dinosaur. But I, I'm compiling information on that. And it began, actually, as I was looking into people claiming that all of this with TTSA is unprecedented. And diving into NICAP gave me specific circumstances where I could say, well, this person in a high... Uh, position in, in the military and this person that was in the CIA, they said that disclosure was around the corner and they said that they were alien craft and um, we, we seem to have a, a, a circumstance with NICAP that mirrors TTSA to rather fascinating extents at times. And of course Donald Kehoe was the, uh, was the, was the, was the person who was being fed this information by all these anonymous sources back then in the same way. Yes, yes. And, and on YouTube, there is a clip of Donald Kehoe being on the old game show, the old American game show to tell the truth, where they would have a guest and two other guests and they would try to fool the panel as to who was actually, in this case, the leader of a UFO research organization. <laughs> and during that show, he made the comment that they were getting real close to the truth. He sure did. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack, it's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and um, all the best with the new projects and, and the little plug for your blog, uh, The UFO Trail. I recommend going out and getting hold of Jack's book, The Graves Have Been Framed. Um, a really good, insightful uh, look into the UFO community. So uh, we'll leave you to go and enjoy the Florida sunshine. You've still got a day ahead of you, uh, or an afternoon ahead of you. I do. Thank you. I, I will. I'll enjoy some sunshine and you, good luck with you guys' projects. And thank you very much for having me on your show. Thanks. Yeah, it's we'll been keep, a pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. We'll keep following you on Twitter and, uh, and your blog. All right. Once again, thank you for listening. And you can find more of Jack's musings at ufotrail.blogspot.com. The link to buy his book, The Grace Have Been Framed, is included in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the past hour, don't forget to like and subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. And until next time, keep watching the skies.